Oh, it's nice to see you're still here. <laughs> it is always an option that you're not here. So. And just before coming in here, uh, Carol and Steve independently asked me, how are you doing? Are you nervous? <laughs> Big vote of confidence. <laughs> Uh, and you know, they've each served as uh, mentors for me and Carol uh, was reminding me well, not needing to remind me because I know very clearly but she was saying you know four years ago you wouldn't be feeling like this it's kind of comfortable and not panicky uh, so it's just um, it, this was this what you know, it's, I, a lot of people have some public speaking uh, fears and anxieties and uh, for me it was a pretty overwhelming uh, experience and I kind of like sharing that because it's uh, sometimes we wonder what difference uh, pacing back and forth is making you kind of think have we gone crazy what am I doing with this uh, process is it going anywhere and as we look back over periods of practice, we really do see so much change. So much change. Initially, you know, this was actually during the last sitting, I was, uh, I was remembering that about four years ago when the training was starting, I was just going to assist and not have to do very much. And all I was doing uh, at the beginning of the retreat was I was coming up here and there were a few people sitting in the hall at that time and I was going to bring my shawl and just put it on my cushion, okay, I'm just settling in. And just walking to the front of the hall, putting my shawl down, my heart was racing. So self-conscious, just spinning mind. And really I thought this is hopeless. I can't even put my shawl <laughs> up here. How can I possibly open my, open my mouth and say something coherent? So... And that's the beauty of the practice, you know, is at first it was just being with racing heart, that that's an okay experience to be with. I blush very easily. So what is it like to get really red in front of more than two or three people? That's terrifying. <laughs> but then it's just an experience, getting, feeling these experiences. And as we get more comfortable with what's arising, and it's not as personal, we realize that our capacity to be with experiences really grows. And it's truly freeing, really transformative. So already there's been so much meaningful sharing in the groups. People discovering a little bit like the art of relaxation that came up a lot in the groups that I was with just how much wisdom it takes to relax deeply. And it's not an easy thing when we say relax. How do we relax? And someone was commenting that just the instruction of that it's not difficult to sit here was a big reminder for them. It's like, oh wow, I even try when I'm just sitting. And I make a huge task of that. So these tendencies for 
the mind to overdo and struggle with experience. It's always happening. And we live this way. We live with a lot of over-efforting. You know, so this is already in just two or three days, so many discoveries of what our habits of mind are. And this is what the Dharma really invites us to do, is to discover what's, what's alive for us, what's really happening. And so I really appreciate this practice and to see you sitting quietly and walking. You know, it's easy to feel like, am I the only one really interested in the Dharma when we're, when we're you know, in our experience? Because it can feel a little self-consuming or as if we're the only ones interested in this journey. And it's so rewarding to see other people. And more as I get older, uh, at least in age, uh, in the practice, I really value Sangha. It's such a support to see other people attending to their experience, watching what's happening for them so that when I have some doubt and confusion, I can see that other people are sticking with it. And it'd be really hard to come into the hall if we were alone, the only one, you know, at night or in the morning. Sometimes it feels great, you know, great, I'm finally alone. And that's really blissful. But then to actually stick with it over days and months, that's hard. So really valuing the sense of community here so, t- I said I would do questions. Some of you are very liberal with your asking of questions. Um, so, I, I did little groups. Um, we'll see how that goes, kind of topics. And the reason I wanted to do that was because this practice is a little bit, um, flavor is new for some of you, just a little orientation was different. Wanted to see what sorts of questions now were rising now that we're three days into the retreat. Um, so, let's start. So, what, and, and I just want to say that um, I mostly was going with questions that were really either pertinent to the practice, thinking that we'll get to more theoretical questions a little bit later on during our time here, and also the ones that were more common themes so that I could, I could hit most of the questions. So if your question isn't touched on, it's just circumstances. Or I couldn't read your writing, which <laughs> did happen. So what wisdom can one gain from paying attention to one's breathing? And I wanted to start with that question because it's just so direct and a little bit was touching on what I was just saying was it's really hard to know what it is that we're gaining as we watch our ordinary experiences. And something that I increasingly discover, and this is, I think, spoken about in the teachings, is that any thread that we pull on in the Dharma, we find is connected to everything else. Right? So we tug on an emotion, right? some emotion, something that we're feeling. What is that connected to? There may be some cause, like a thought, something we saw. That emotion then may make the body feel a certain way. And those feelings in the body start to impact 
maybe more thoughts, more moods. Right, so every, every experience becomes a whole portal for discovery. And something as ordinary as the breath, we think, what can we possibly learn from just paying attention to the breath? So the breath, is it permanent or impermanent? Right? All the time, it's a new breath. Can a breath be, uh, give us lasting satisfaction? The sense of dukkha, anicca dukkha. And does the breath belong to us? Right? So even little discoveries of how the nature of a breath is operating, we can see these universal characteristics that it's impermanent, it arises because of a host of conditions, maybe the, the reflex of the body, the impulse to survive, the muscles in the body, and that it is actually a natural condition. Very often we're not intending to breathe. And we can see how that's just an impersonal process. Oh, it's just the breath. So at first we're breathing and it's actually hard. And this was my process around breathing in the beginning was I didn't know even know how to breathe in a natural way. If I tried to breathe and be mindful, I was controlling my breath. This is how much we control everything. Right? We control so much. And so learning how then to just allow the breath to be a natural expression while being aware of it. And there's a whole teaching called the Anapanasati Sutta, which is mindfulness of breathing. Here it's taking one object in experience, the breath. And it goes through an entire process where the four foundations of mindfulness are also revealed. So we can become mindful of the body while breathing, mindful of pleasant and unpleasant experiences while breathing. We can become mindful of the mind states while breathing. Mindful of the hindrances, mindful of the defilements. And then ultimately as well, mindful of the awakening factors, the factors that are very wholesome and begin to build as the momentum gets stronger. So even taking one object like the breathing is a portal for an entire development. And I would used to have to remind myself, because oftentimes in my early practice, and this happened for years, I had a knot in my chest and throat, and it's still there sometimes. And I would remind myself that any object is a good enough object to be with. Any object. Any object can teach us the nature of identification, of clinging, of reactivity, they can teach us and inform us how our mind is relating to the experience, what the right attitude is, how it lets go. And so if the same thing continues to arise over and over again, we can use that. It doesn't have to be some you know, extraordinary, wonderful fireworks of experience. And that's something that as the practice really does get deeper in our understanding, we really start to figure out what it is, how is it that this practice unfolds?
is this one quick story about chasing good experiences. This is when I was practicing in Burma as a monk and I you know, had a lot of momentum at that time. And I wasn't really aware of it, but I was still a little bit uh, experiencing, experience chasing, you know, running after the bliss states that I thought was the goal that we've been talking about a little bit. And I finally felt like I was having an experience that would impress Sayadaw Utejaniya. And it had, you know, it had a lot of kind of uh, mystical qualities to it. You know, there was one point when I was in my room, I thought maybe I was levitating and my eyes were closed. Um, I don't think I was. (laughs) And, you know, there was just, you know, very strong, powerful mind qualities. And I would go to the hall, sit, and the, you know, this, this energy was getting stronger and, and uh, more blissed out. And I'd try and get back to the room so that no one would interrupt my, my precious experiences. And I finally had an interview with, with Sidon. I was explaining, kind of describing all these uh, experiences of what uh, I was going through and how the awareness was, was being experienced at that time, which I thought was, you know, I was getting close to enlightenment. <laughs> and after this long description he just he looked at me and, and he said so and what did you understand which was not what I was you know really wanting to hear um, and you know I've, I've shared this before but I, I basically pouted for about a month afterwards <laughs> and refused to, to acknowledge him, you know, when we'd walk by and I just would, he doesn't understand me and this is a problem of translation. Uh, so, but you know, he actually, it was precisely what I needed in that moment because it was almost, I would say pretty much the last time I was confusing what the goal of the practice was. I hadn't realized I was still chasing experiences, thinking that that would finally resolve what it was that I felt was problematic in experience. And it was a really strong lesson, like, oh, right, this is a path of understanding, learning. And how do we learn is by developing these qualities of stability, of supporting moments of awareness. And as the mind gets more stable, we're able to see more things. And that feeds back into our base of wisdom. And as this wisdom quality grows, it's like we begin to see the territory of the mind. We're able to to really understand more about this this experience. And so then it's the wisdom and, and awareness that starts to practice. So really having that orientation to practice can take a lot of pressure off. We're not trying to get somewhere I'm trying to get something done. Just very simple. It's so simple that we make it difficult again and again. And the more that we do understand the practice, actually, it becomes very ordinary. Just being present, recognizing what's happening. Okay.
So these are questions, I believe, on awareness. Can awareness be an object of awareness? If I don't set a time to do sitting meditation or walking, won't I be run by greed or aversion to stop? As long as I'm aware of what drives me, is that the awareness I want? If I'm aware, is that enough? I feel like during sitting meditation, my mind skips around to many different objects in fractions of a second, like from feeling the pressure of the chair on my my, mm, legs, to my breath, to an external noise, to the temperature. I'm not particularly guiding the changes in focus. Is this the same thing as awareness of everything? Or should I expect to have simultaneous attention as I practice more? So just say a couple words. Awareness can it be an object of awareness? The way I like to relate to that kind of quality is is to really recognize that every function of mind or every every arising, every quality that is there, it has its own unique characteristics. Right? So there are the general characteristics that we talk about, that things are impermanent, not satisfactory, and not self. And that's true of every Dhamma, every aspect of reality. But then every experience has its unique characteristics as, as well. So experiences in the mind, for example, of happiness, of sadness, have their own flavor. We know when we're happy. We know when we're sad, we know when we're bored, when we're restless. As we start to be more and more mindful, we begin to recognize this quality of being aware. Right, so right now, can you feel this sense of being aware? Are you aware that you're hearing? Are you aware that you're sitting? And do you recognize that you're aware of that experience? So that's that sense of being aware of awareness. It becomes confusing when we start trying to grasp it and look for the awareness. Because it's immaterial, it's just mind activity, we're not going to find it anywhere. But as we begin to recognize this quality of being aware, it becomes a really easeful process of checking, is the mind aware? We no longer need to go looking for an object. We can just say, is the mind aware? And we know already. And at times, even without asking, we're walking around and we can know more clearly, yeah, the awareness is clear or it's not clear. And then just a little extra touch can bring the awareness and clarity back. Does that make sense? And then as far as the mind skipping around, knowing more objects, This is part of the process as we're not directing the attention to different objects of experience and we're allowing the awareness to receive more objects. It begins to feel as if the mind is darting to different sense doors. It's knowing the hearing, then it's knowing the seeing, then the body experiences, 
And it's like th- moving around very quickly and it's like we're still grasping after the objects. Again, as this momentum of the awareness is more and more established, everything comes to the mind. All experiences will come to the awareness. And we can really settle back. It's a little bit like, uh, I, Carol was describing it as a highway, being on the highway and not needing to see every, every movement that's there. And for, my, for me, the analogy that, was, that really works is like watching a river flowing by. Then we don't need to watch every droplet. We can just sit by the river and allow the river to flow. Or big weather patterns like a tornado. If we go right up into the tornado, obviously that's not something we'd want to do, but if we were, you know, trying to watch the process of the tornado too closely, you wouldn't be able to experience it. You wouldn't really have the full picture. And this resting back And this is where we can give a lot of freedom to even experiences like thoughts. So when we have this this kind of reaction to the thinking mind, it becomes very difficult to to watch thoughts. But we remember that thoughts are just a natural process and we give it a lot of space. Allowing the thoughts to be there becomes very easy. There's no more struggle or antagonism no more aversion, then we just allow thoughts to come and go. All right, this question. What is the average velocity of a common swallow? (laughs) Someone did ask that, and that was just to see if you're still awake. I don't know. <laughs> All right, so what exactly does causes and conditions mean? Does this get clear over practice? Does this get clear as our practice matures? Sadhu Tejaniya talks a lot about nature as a part of right attitude. Can you speak to his meaning of nature? Okay, and then there was a question about how does this impact the sense of responsibility if things are just nature? Hmm. So Steve was talking a little bit about right view. And this is where this understanding of nature comes in, causes and conditions. And it's such a uh, important part of our practice is to have this understanding that what we're watching is really a process, causes and conditions. Our normal way of viewing experience is not to understand things as they are. Our normal moment by moment experience is really enveloped in a sense of who we are and we're immersed in our story and we're identified with everything that we experience every emotion, every thought, every story. And this bundle of experience then is bumping into life as it happens. And because life is the way it is, it's not in our control, it changes on us, we don't get what we want. There is this sense of struggle, of suffering. 
And any moment of suffering, if we were to trace it back, there will be found some wrong view. Some delusion will be there. We're not understanding things correctly. We're either in conflict with change or we're clinging and grasping to some process. It's just a natural process. So the idea that things are causes and conditions is intellectual in the beginning, but it helps the mind to relate to experience. And, um, and this is something that I remember in, in checking in with, with Sayadaw Tejaniya f- in the first you know, period of time with him when I was still trying to really figure out the practice. And I would say things like, you know, I'm really, uh, really bored or I'm really frustrated or I was walking here. Or, and I was using the word I a lot. And he just said, even if you don't believe it, just say the mind got bored. The mind was restless. Uh, there was this experience of uh, confusion. And it w- what that's trying to do is to actually help orient the mind, the awareness, to seeing things wisely through right, right view. When we, when we take that perspective that this is nature, then we can take interest in it. When we have a personal uh, stake in the matter, we tend to have another round of defilement. We start to try and get rid of it, to judge it, get out of it. And just notice when you, when you actually remember that a mood is just a mood. If we take that perspective that this is just what it is, oh, this is an object and it can be known and it has some conditions. It was caused by some thoughts or some experience, something I saw, something that happened. This whole relationship to the experience becomes one of wise reflection. So ordinary experiences become something that we begin to to learn from, we open to. Please describe links, if any, between meditation practice awareness of sight, sounds, etc., to skillful means of dealing with anger, especially towards loved ones. Okay. I'll just answer that question on its own. Um, think about what normally happens when we approach someone that we know. And particularly around people that we know really well is we immediately create a very strong sense of self again, which is why, you know, oftentimes it's said, if you feel like you've really gotten enlightened, go home. 
talk to your partner, talk to your whomever, check it out. <laughs> we know this is true. We feel like, you know, I'm really free now. Just try. See what happens when you, when you talk to someone familiar. And the reason is because if we're not being mindful, and particularly then through seeing and hearing, immediately the concepts, we pay more attention to concepts. You. I know you. This story. This history. All of this uh, memory comes back into the mind and it floods our experience because now we're much more immersed in the conceptual mind. Basically meaning we're, we're dragging with us all of this history and memory and reactivity and we're no longer in the moment. And I like to think of being aware, really present. It's not just liberating ourselves. We're liberating other people from our cage of our stories, of our views, our assumptions, our opinions. This is one of the things that happens in group interviews frequently is that people realize just how human we all are. And we are, you know, first it can feel like we're alone in our process and maybe everyone else looks so peaceful or they look so depressed or whatever it is. But then as we open our hearts and talk and share, we realize, wow, this stuff is so universal. We do have our own stories, but there's also these universal ways that we experience life. And we all suffer. We all want to be happy. And we're all very vulnerable. So specifically around seeing, how does that connect with dealing with anger, especially towards loved ones? We just have to check it out. See what happens when you're really being aware that you're seeing and you're aware of your body. You know what you're feeling. And then you move towards someone very familiar. See what, see what difference that makes. You know, I know for me in relationship, the mind can still very easily get convinced of its rightness and easily get caught into argument. You know, it's just, that's what we do. It seems like the, the structure of relationship is to at least have some argument in there. And yet, you know, the more that the mindfulness is there, the mind is watching some other part of the mind get caught into an argument. And it's fascinating, like, to see which one's going to win. Is mindfulness and wisdom going to kind of let go of this feud? Or is a sense of being really right going to really take over and go, yes, I, I, I know I'm right here. You know, it's just to watch this battle. And this is all this can happen. But more and more, as, this, as the strength of practice gets uh, really established, we don't even need to try. Its wisdom is already working. The awareness is already working. And we can see how we're hooked. And we simply let it go. But we're very difficult to do that if we simply try to be uh, kind in the moment. If there's not some awareness with us as we're, as we're moving through our experience, 
it's very difficult to suddenly turn on compassion, turn on patience. Yeah, so this is the benefit. We're speaking so much about these different sense doors. Because we're seeing so much and we make so many stories through the eyes, so many judgments, so much comparing, so much evaluating, you know, clothing, body form, there's so much and it's always happening. If we're being aware through seeing, there's so many opportunities to explore what this ongoing process of of being ourselves is like. Learning about these states of mind, seeing how certain functions lead to some suffering. We don't need to do anything. As we are with these different states, these different qualities, and we understand that they're suffering, the mind starts to think more wisely. It doesn't follow those kinds of thoughts. But at first we get really sensitive to the suffering, you know, of emotions, of the physical pains in the body. But as we pay attention, we actually feel the suffering of certain types of thoughts. That's what we say is unwise attention is to be feeding thoughts that are filled with, with defilements, right? And that's something that we are really unfortunately good at. And a lot of our thoughts are negative thoughts about ourselves, stories that we keep saying inwardly. And those are just thoughts with wrong views. When we really feel the ouch of that and know that it's something that our mind is doing, we begin to let go of those kinds of repetitive, obsessive thoughts. Okay, the book says, this is the great book. (laughs) The book says, in the presence of defilements, insights can't arise. Reading this, the mind wants to get rid of these mental states, hence leading to more aversion. What then is right effort, attitude, when craving aversion arise? Would observing them be enough? Could you please explain again what exactly is meant by checking your attitude? Does it mean I'm supposed to regularly check to see if there is wanting or aversion in my mind? Or does it mean checking to see if I'm meditating with too much effort or too much focusing? So pleasure and pain comes. I see that. When states of pleasure, bliss, etc. arise, is it okay to enjoy such states? I see that craving such states states to arise I see that craving such states to arise creates pain but what to do when they do happen to arise Okay So basically questions to me about uh defilements the craving uh aversion and how to work with them. Um, 
the turning point of my practice was when I really began to relate to uh, any habit of mind as truly just a habit. And I really appreciated when Utejaniya really normalized what it is that we experience. And I had this whole still effort and, and desire to get, get rid of what was arising. I wanted to purify myself. And it took a while to realize actually what we're doing is moving towards our experience. Really opening up to what's here. Some people spoke a lot about trust in the uh, check-ins. To me, this is what trust is. Can we trust moments of awareness to reveal to us what's necessary to learn? We don't need to do anything. We can just simple moments of paying attention. So much comes to us. We see every habit of mind that is there, everything that arises will be, sooner or later, it'll come. The difference in seeing things as nature and just not doing anything is recognizing that there are the causes, that, the conditions that we need to do to put in place. And this is what it means to walk the path. If we're not going to do anything and say everything's nature, then we just kind of sit on the couch and have a beer and sort of let nature work. But that's not going to do anything other than uh, get drunk. I don't know. It's not going to do anything. (laughs) So there is something that we do. We put in these conditions. And learning what conditions we put in, what can we take care of, is part of understanding this practice. So that's what we are doing. We are putting in, it's like the ingredients. We put in the awareness. We check, is the mind aware? And then we check, am I being aware with wanting, with aversion, with wrong views? That's something that we then can shift and bring in some wise reflection. Oh, my job isn't to change experience. It's to open to experience. It's to watch. It's to allow. And the tendency of the mind, though, is to come right back in and begin to try and do something. And this is where, where our discovery is, right, about what we're t- really pointing to in that suffering, the, the dukkha of experience, is how we relate to, to whatever it is. Our basic relationship, our response to ongoing moments. When there's some greed, when there's delusion, when there's some reactivity, and this is expressed through all the, all the emotional reactive states, fear and anxiety, worry, frustration, boredom. That is how the mind is relating to the experience and it's rooted in some misunderstanding, not knowing. So anytime that we know that there's some reactivity, that can be the place we begin to observe. So we take what was previously, what we were identified with, which was observing with, uh, let's say, judgment, 
and then we make the judgment what we're observing. For a while, I was really having to play with, what is it, how am I supposed to experience the attitude of the mind? And what is the right attitude? What, what does that mean? And I remember really trying to think about, okay, for me, the right attitude, and I'd sort of play in my mind the experience of, if I had right attitude, what would that look like? And I would imagine myself in the most non-judging, peaceful place. And that was kind of growing up. Uh, I remember just really enjoying lying on the beach, right where the water, you know, the wave would just sort of trickle up. And I'd just lie there, very, very kind of a, a relaxed way. And I thought, oh yes, this is what it means to not resist, not need anything, just very peaceful. Everything in contrast to that became clear, oh, that's the mind reacting. And so I would play with it if there was some difficult experience and I thought maybe I had the right attitude towards it, I would really check and say, do I really have no agenda in regard to this experience? If there's no agenda in regard to an, with regard to an experience, we could say the mind's at peace with it. You know, so right now, if there is some way that the mind is reacting to the current moment, there is some attitude that we can explore. Is there something that's going on, some reactivity? And getting very interested, allowing dukkha, allowing suffering to point the way towards what to watch. Suffering then becomes this wonderful gift because every moment that there's some dis-ease, we can actually grow in confidence. Something is going on. Some reactivity. And we get really interested. We can get really interested in how the mind can shift from resisting a moment to again opening to what's there even if it's we're opening to the nature of resistance. There's so much to see, so much to explore. I sound like a Dhamma nerd. <laughs> so let's see. So does metta, Metta is loving kindness. Does metta play a part in awareness? The practice of awareness seems to be dominated by the mind. Metta, loving kindness, is the soulmate of awareness, it seems to me. Please talk about metta. It feels like the mind wants to respond to the heart in regard to forgiveness. I could use some clarity. It's interesting, when we talk about mind in the West, we often, you know, point to our head. Uh, and that's, it's, that's very different in a lot of the Buddhist cultures. When they speak about mind, they, you know, they touch their, their chest here. The word citta, which, which is what mind is translated as, is really embodies both this heart and mind quality. And yet in English, when we talk about different functions, sometimes we have to say the, the mind, the heart, 
because mind in our languaging sounds very brain oriented, very, you know, a lot of in the head, sort of logical reasoning. But actually mind encompasses the full subjective experience. It includes the heart. And so when we say mind, just think of the entire, the entire experience. Anything that's not in the seeing, the hearing, the smelling, the touching, we can say is mind, mind and heart. And then as far as awareness, a lot of people kind of uh, struggle with this a little bit. Uh, is, is awareness practice without heart? And there are a lot of practices in the Dharma that are geared just towards developing loving kindness. The way, the way I was taught, and I, well, I wasn't specifically guided towards a lot of loving kindness practices. Sayadaw Utejaniya would, would often say to me that real mindfulness, true mindfulness, true awareness, has love in it. It is very intimate. It's right with experience. There's no pushing away. The pushing away is a version that comes with mindfulness, but it's not mindfulness. When we feel the pushing away, we can turn the attention to the aversion. And I could just tell how he was speaking that in his practice of being mindful, it was so clear that there was love in how experiences were being met. And this is something we just need to explore. Is it true? Does awareness that is without judgment, that is free of any defilement in that moment, is it intimate? Is there anything further that could be loved in being awake, open, allowing, And metta, just to say metta loving kindness practices are very powerful uh, practice to learn about and to develop. And you know, we're offered by the Buddha frequently in response to times of, let's say, very strong aversion that's there. If, if a lot of feelings of self-worth uh, are playing out, then we can offer specific uh, antidote of offering this quality of loving kindness, of a reminder that we can be loving towards ourselves. But as, was, as Steve was mentioning in his talk, what ultimately uproots tendencies towards reactivity of greed, of hatred, of delusion, is clearly seeing. When we clearly see that these tendencies when they are operating, cause suffering to ourself and to others, the wisdom lets it go. When it's truly seen, then to its depth, we would say very deep seeds that are resting in the mind can be uprooted. When the mind has no more reactivity the natural response, we would say, is love, right? is loving kindness. And this is when we talk about the four Brahma Viharas, which are these four divine abodes. These are the four natural responses of the mind. Natural, they happen naturally. When 
we meet suffering, the natural response of a mind that's free of any defilements is compassion. When we meet states of well-being and joy, the natural response is to delight in that when we're not filled with our own sense of envy, comparing, of clinging, you know, kind of holding ourselves tight. It's just a natural response because there's no more seeds of defilements. And metta, the loving kindness, meets beings when appropriate. And then equanimity is when we know that there's uh, nothing to, to be done, just understanding causes and conditions, the mind is at peace. I feel full. <laughs> but I'll just see if there's any question from the hall since um, it is a Q&A period. Just see if anything's percolating in your mind right now that you'd like to, to ask. And if not, we'll pause. Yes, yes. Yeah, I said something very profound and, and you missed it. <laughs> I don't think I can repeat it. Um, no, I, did, I didn't get there. So, the sense of responsibility. Um, if we think of things happening as just nature, it can feel as if, well, then there's nothing to, we don't need to do anything. And this is really where we start to understand the, the real, the law of cause and effect of, of karma. Um, on a personal level, we can really see that even though this is an unfolding, just natural process, there is a natural process of causes and conditions that leads to suffering. And so even though we could say, yes, there is this, this nature that's happening, we are very clear about wanting to take care of this suffering in our own heart. And then the sense of responsibility in the world, as we truly understand, really understand the nature of suffering, and we understand our impact, we understand what it is that brings suffering about in the world, the sense of responsibility can be right there. That we do take a sense of caring, let's say, when there's suffering that something can be done about, we can act very skillfully. You can feel something is wanting to to form in the mind. this you know, part of the understanding of the lawfulness of experience, 
that there is a cause and effect process, we can get very sensitive really to every speech, every word, every action has a result. It has an impact internally and also on other people. Even though we could say that there are causes and conditions coming together that have resulted in every past action and every present action. So there are those causes and conditions. Results are real. The effects are actually happening. And when we really understand then how what we're saying based in either wholesome or unwholesome will take two different results. One will be a sense of ease and peace, another will be some suffering. Then our desire, our wish, the wisdom mind really understands, oh, I wish to put in those conditions that will lead increasingly to a sense of well-being. So then we really freed, I'd say as, as the mind gets stronger in practice and really understands this lawfulness of life, it's very liberating to move into the world. If we're not afraid of all of the normal things that would get us very bound up, once the heart is freed, there's this interest to move towards lessening suffering. And this is what the Buddha did. He woke up, he was free, mind was at peace and at ease. And yet, he spent the entire life after his awakening moving about the world, sharing what he could in order to bring about the lessening of suffering to, to help others in the world. And here we are, you know, 2,600 years later, benefiting from that, that activity. You know, and so there can be a very deep sense of, of uh, taking care of this world, even as we understand it is a process of causes and conditions coming together. Is that kind of clear? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I understand the idea of not wanting anything mm-hmm. in meditation. Mm-hmm. I'm finding it less easy to understand being in a state where you don't want anything in life. Mm. Right. Detachment from life. You know, having children, I don't have the luxury of not wanting or not being aversive to possible eventualities. Right. So the question was about seeing that it's in the meditation. It seems possible to to not feed the wanting. Yeah. Maybe that's not uh, a useful thing to do. But then in life, it seems as if it's appropriate to want good things for our kids or family. Um, you know, in this, uh, there was a phrase I remember Sutajaniya saying that uh, it's not only greed that wants things. Wisdom has its own wants, we could say. The wants of wisdom, it's a little bit strange word of the wisdom wanting, but what is it that wisdom moved towards? Or what does compassion move towards? It understands a sense of responsibility to taking care of family, right? It understands uh, how to nurture our children, the next generation, how to bring them up skillfully. 
And we could say that can be both a, uh, an aspiration, but then when it gets leaning in towards that sense of, of needing it to be so, needing our child to be a certain way, that's where we can see that extra bit starts to move into that realm of desire, of clinging and grasping. So we can do everything we can to put in the conditions in place that would help the world around us, our family around us. And that can be wise activity. When we start to see that it's expecting the results that we want, and we get frustrated when it's not playing out, or we get hurt because it's not playing out, then that's moving again back into not understanding the lawfulness of things simply will happen based on their own conditions. And we can do what we can to support life to, to happen in a, in a wholesome way. You know, so we really can take care. But the wisdom knows, right? It's not in my control. Conditions we can put in place, but things are not in our control. That's where that sense of really being at ease again with, with the process of, of experience. Yeah. Okay. There's a few waving hands, but do you guys have patience? <laughs> I'm asking the teachers if they have patience. Who not, the teachers are oftentimes the ones that want to get out of here, you know? <laughs> I'm going to take one more. Just to challenge them, I'm going to take one more. But I saw the purple shirt first. Uh, purple, okay. Right. Uh, yes, I didn't get to that. Yes. As part of me too. Yes. Uh, really quickly, there was a yogi who was reporting in Burma, um, and this is a, just a kind of fun story of a, a woman yogi that was um, really, really following her experiences very closely. She loves shrimp. There was, this wasn't a vegetarian, it's not vegetarian. Uh, in Burma, they just serve food, whatever's offered. And so she was, she was in the meat line and sh- shrimp was something she really liked. So she was reporting to Sayadaw her experience as she went through the food line, saying that she was watching this greed for the shrimp arise. It was very strong, very clear greed. And it was like, you know, she was serving, just taking, she could see it down the, the row. It was like the shrimp was there and she was, the mind was already on it. And it's like just moving down, you know, looking at it, waiting, seeing the greed. Moving slowly though in order to really watch the greed. Got to the, sh- to the shrimp, and this is her reporting, she look, you know, looking at it, watching the greed, really wanting it, love this, you know, it's just great. Okay, and then moved on, took the next meal, the next dish. And Saido Tejania, who's quite a foodie, he, he likes food. <laughs> he, he, he looked at her and said, did you take the shrimp? <laughs> and she said, no, I just watched the greed arise and then it, it went very peaceful and I moved on. And he said, take the shrimp. <laughs> and he really emphasized that point, take the shrimp, take <laughs> said, you did your job. You watched the greed, you know. 
And because it wasn't greed that was leading towards harm, it was just the pleasure of this, this sense door. He said, just, just be very natural. You can watch. And this is where we can explore, you know, and be, you know, we have to be, this is the uh, mindfulness that extends beyond just narrow focus is we understand the context of experiences. We know when something should not be done because it's going to cause some, some harm. But a lot of experiences are joyful that we can, joy is a very wholesome factor of mind and it's very easy that it leans into or becomes a, uh, an attachment that we depend on. And when that cause of that joy is not there, if there's the residue then of the suffering, this is where, again, from Utejaniya, he often talked about, if we move this far up the pendulum with liking, we're gonna, when it's gone, we will swing back. When it's, if we've really attached and depended on that thing, we get the reverberation of the loss of it. And depending how much we've really clung to something, and we know this to be too, if you've really held on and depended on something for your happiness, when it's gone, you, you feel it very deeply. But this is where we can really explore, is there, is there grasping in the joy, or is there just this free expression of happiness, non-clinging, light, very easeful. And when does it move into this, you know, more needing? Is that, yeah, great, yeah. Okay. Thank you everyone for your attention. And it's traditional to sit for a moment quietly. Let's do that. time again for mindfulness and awareness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.